Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The White House states it's hopeful that a deal will be reached to release Hamas hostages. Joining us on the programme tonight, after spending over 40 days in war-torn Gaza, Ibrahim Alaga is in studio with us. A new report details the rise of misinformation and disinformation online. We debate the findings. Thus, from retail royalty to the turbulent tribunals, we reflect on the life and legacy of businessman Bendon. Already there's been findings in the tribunals which have been highly critical of me um, and I've taken them on the chin. Twenty-eight premature babies have been evacuated from Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza and are now receiving treatment in Egypt. Meanwhile, the US has stated that we are closer than we've ever been to a hostage deal. As the ongoing conflict continues, the death toll has now surpassed 13,000 people. Well, joining me to discuss this further is a man that spent 40 days on the ground in Gaza, Ibrahim Alaga. Also joining us on the programme tonight, Fianna Fáil TD, Jim O'Callaghan, Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly, and special correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Mick Clifford. And down the line with us tonight is mediator and the founder of Forward Thinking, Oliver McTiernan. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, I want to come to you first, Ibrahim. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Uh, you came home on Saturday with your family, very emotional scenes at Absolutely. Dublin Airport. Um, how have you and the family adjusted to life back in Ireland? Well, um, we're, we're, I think we're doing amazing. Um, we've been overwhelmed with friends and family. Um, we're just going back to normal life. Sam is going back to his school tomorrow. I'll be back on work on Wednesday. So hopefully we'll get to the normal life as soon as possible. Does all of that feel a bit surreal? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because just last week, last Thursday, we were speaking to you, not from Khan Yunus, you had managed at that point to get yeah. over the border. Yeah. You were in Cairo and yeah. the kids had enjoyed their first yes. night Absolutely. away from yeah. um, away from the bombs, away from the bombardment. And um, even at that point, you were still coming to terms with that change for you. Yeah. yeah, it was a huge change, massive change. I mean, the night before, we were not able to sleep properly, um, hungry, thirsty, uh, in darkness, but then next night we were, we were very glad we were, you know, back to the normal life. Mm -hmm. You're naturally seeing a lot more in the way of video and, and news coverage from Gaza now, are you? Yeah. Have you been tuning in in recent days? Uh, not as much as I expected, but yes, I've seen some, some news, yes. Mm -hmm. And what's your reaction to it? Because oh where God, you were, yeah. you, you didn't have the same access. We could speak to you inter yeah. intermittently, but it wasn't always possible. So. Yeah. Seeing the reality now. Yes, yeah. What's it like? <clears throat> Especially because I was through that, through the war, and uh, 
I, I always had that feeling that I and my family could be the next one, could be, you know, targeted. Um, a lot of innocent people have died. And I was thinking we could be ones, you know, so um, it was very hard, difficult feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, I can imagine so. And I'm thinking today about what the UN have said that two thirds of people in Gaza have been made homeless. Um, can you tell us about the scale of internal displacement in Gaza? Yeah, so I, I've, I've seen that. Um, a lot of them are relocated now to hospitals, for example, and, and schools and on the streets. I've seen them and I have footage of um, I've, when I went to the city centre, for example, I was recording and I can see the amount of people that I never saw that in my city, Khanunis. Khanunis is a quiet city, but suddenly it has thousands and thousands of people, all of them homeless, everyone just running around trying to find food or water or or anywhere to shelter. And I was really heartbroken when, I think the last two days just before I left, there was heavy rains and wind and, and people, I was just thinking, how are they gonna survive? Because a lot of them, they don't have anything on top of their heads. Do you think people in Ireland have a sense of it from, you're saying you haven't, you know, you've, you've seen some footage and you watch some news, it must be difficult to take all of that in. Do you think here we, we have a sense, we have a, an empathy around you know, what you're going through right now? Uh, yes, I, I, I have felt that people here in Ireland, they have, um, let's say, a fair view and about the situation. And I think they, I, I feel the, the empathy and I feel the um, wanting to know more about what's going on. And um, I, I think, yes, they, they are, they feel exactly what's going on. Do your kids, you mentioned um, your son Sammy going back to school tomorrow, um, do they have any sense, I suppose, of, of hope now you've escaped this awful situation that they may one day go back to Gaza, go back and this see is, family? Yeah, this is the problem is that now, what I was hoping from visiting Gaza is to make them more connected to their, to my country, to where I was grown up, to our relatives, our mm. grandparents and all of that. But I think the experience they have been through has had a very negative impact on how they view Gaza. I mean, if you say Gaza to them, they'll be terrified. They'll have, I'm, I'm pretty sure they'll bring back all those bad memories that they had while they were staying over there. So I don't know. I don't know how, how I'm going to, me and my and their mother, how gonna we deal with that and, and bring, try to bring, bring it back the lovely image about Gaza. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, before the war, they were enjoying it. They loved it. They loved Gaza. They loved the food. They loved the beach, all of that. But I think what happened then after that, I think it's going to have a very big impact on them. It's something uh, to reflect upon, isn't it, Mick? Um, the, look, the, the deep consequences of all of this. I mean, the, the huge civilian casualties that we are seeing and also the fallout for generations to come. Well, that's the thing. We're even talking about going back to Gaza. What is Gaza going to be? Unfortunately, is, is, is the question no, because I mean, the damage that's been done to the infrastructure, mm -hmm. completely separate from the whole humanitarian disaster and, and the psychological impact of everything apart from all of that, it's very difficult to see where it'll go and, and, and what can be done. And I mean, Israel is convinced that no matter what happens from their perspective, Hamas cannot be allowed to continue within Gaza. That's mm -hmm. where they're 
telling the world they're, they're coming from. But at what point do they stop? At what point do they stop and say, OK, we accept we can't continue with this? And that's really getting to a point. I think what's happening, though, I think there is a slight shift at the very least among places like in the USA. I mean, there was a poll there recently in the last few days that suggested younger people in the USA were not happy with Joe Biden's handling of it and not happy on the basis of a complete lack of empathy with the Palestinian people. That's an indication of how crazy the situation has got, that you have that level of, of support for it in, in the US. It's a bit more complicated in the EU, but the unfortunate thing is everything, I think, is down to the outside pressure that is now put on Israel because they're focused mm -hmm. on what they believe is the correct thing to do, but their way of going about it is basically, to use that awful term, scorched earth. They just, you know, and it, it can't go on any longer. Mm. Like, do, you you believe, do you believe, Jim, that diplomacy will have some success here? We'll talk um, in a moment with Oliver McTiernan mm. about the hostage situation, but that uh, a diplomatic push towards uh, a ceasefire, towards a hostage release will, will bear fruit. Yeah, I think diplomacy will work, Claire. What we've seen is six weeks of appalling violence. And one thing that's apparent from all the violence is that the political objectives of um, Hamas and the Israeli government won't be achieved through violence. But recently we've seen some morsels of good news. Abraham and his family coming back, other Irish citizens getting back, the babies being transferred to Egypt today, and I suppose all the other events are happening about the hostages. So they're all happening because of diplomacy, negotiations. Qatar seems to be playing a significant role in this. But there must be a realisation coming now to Israel that the problems they see themselves as facing will not be solved through violence. This is a political problem. There's horrific violence there. It must be very difficult for people who have come from Gaza, Ibrahim, or people who are in Israel to try and mm. look at it objectively. It's impossible to if you're there. But a country such as Ireland, who's gone through not something as bad, but something similar, we need to be able to point out to them that the way to resolve a political crisis is through a political solution. And some brave politicians out there have to stand up and recognise that in Israel and in the Palestinian Authority, recognising that this is a problem that will not be solved through violence. It can only be solved through political compromise. Louise, would you concur with that? Would your party concur with that? Um, you're pushing for sanctions to be imposed mm -hmm. on Israel and you had that referral as well that you were looking to get a cross-party consensus on mm -hmm. to refer Israel to the International Criminal Court. So where, where do you stand on where the diplomatic solution can lie now? Well, I think um, what Israel needs to understand is that there have to be consequences for, for actions such as we have seen. Um, and I think they need to feel the, the weight of the international um, opinion. And, you know, I mean, I, I said this in the doll when I was speaking um, last week, like when Mary Manon refused to handle South African fruit, uh, she put in train a campaign that started on Henry Street, but grew and grew and grew into, um, you know, there was already an anti-apartheid movement, but it pushed and pushed. And it was the weight of international opinion that uh, eventually forced a change in South Africa. So what we say is pull every single lever, you know, use every mechanism available. Mm -hmm. So we have proposed a referral to the International Criminal Court. We believe that, uh, you know, a war crime is a war crime. It doesn't matter who perpetrates it, that, that there should be a referral made. But we also agree that, uh, you know, that diplomacy has a place. And at the, in the end, dialogue 
and discussion is what will bring peace. But peace must come. 13,000 people are dead. Thousands and thousands of children are dead. There must be peace. There must be a ceasefire because a ceasefire takes the pressure off and allows people to be able to have that dialogue there must be a ceasefire. OK, um, at this point, I'd like to bring in uh, mediator Oliver McTiernan. Oliver, you've been listening to the conversation, um, a push for, I suppose, diplomacy to try uh, to resolve some of the, the big... Uh, what's happening, it's, it's really kind of indescribable, but right now we have um, the 240 hostages and there's some movement centering around their release. What can you tell us about who's wrapped up in these negotiations and how these talks are being managed right now that it's come to that point that we are hearing word from Biden, from the White House, that uh, a deal to reach hostages is nearing? Well, I don't know what Biden knows that the rest of us don't know, but for me, it seems impossible that the hostages, uh, uh, the civilian hostages, um, could be released safely without an immediate ceasefire. It's only if you have a ceasefire, and Ibrahim caught some of the drama of, of Gaza. They, I agree with them entirely. Gaza's a wonderful place. It's been turned into a nightmare um, almost overnight. Um, in that situation, how you can move hostages people safely, I don't know. I think the two goals that um, Netanyahu's government has set itself, one, the elimination of Hamas, and secondly, the release of the hostages, they are totally incompatible. You cannot have serious negotiations to safely deliver people if at the same time you're shelling and bombing everything in sight. Yeah. So question... um, it seems to me impossible. They're, they're, mm. I don't know what Biden, what insight he has, mm. but if you know Gaza, you know what he's talking about is impossible without a ceasefire. And is that the question about which comes first, a ceasefire or the release of hostages, or could it be well, a phased release running alongside a ceasefire or a pause. What is being considered now? And what's the, well, I'm trying to imagine you know, what the likely option is at this point. If we go back to the 8th of October, no sooner were the hostages taken into Gaza than the shelling and bombing began. So how can you collect together people in a safe place and process them right through Gaza, now split between the south and the north, and get them to the Rafah border safely. It just doesn't make sense. So, so I think, for me, it's essential that Biden, but not just for the hostages, but for the people of Gaza, that he stands up for what is right, that he brings a moral sense back into our international relationship, and say, enough, we can't support this action anymore. Because the ceasefire today is something that Israel have strongly been holding out on. So I'm wondering, you know, how who's talking to whom here? We have, uh, I suppose, the, the four parties within the, the, the negotiations are the Qataris, Israel, the US and Hamas. Um, but Israel and Hamas are not talking directly to each other. 
No, and therefore you wonder how they can make progress. I mean, it's a very complex situation where all sorts of misunderstandings can arise and misinterpretations. If there was serious attempt to negotiate the release of the hostages, I think you need both parties in the same vicinity with a mediator passing just one mediator going from one group to the other group. And in that way, you can hope at least to get some sort of understanding that could lead to an agreement on release. At the moment, I think we've been listening for five weeks now. Oh, hostages are going to be released. Every time I predicted it wouldn't materialize for the simple reason what I said. Without a ceasefire, you cannot guarantee the safety of, of the hostages. And let's face it, without a ceasefire, how many more thousands of people and children will we see die in Gaza? All right. Um, let's bring our panel back in here. Um, Ibrahim, you know, what would Palestinians like to see here? Clearly a stop to the bombing, a stop to the airstrikes uh, and that full ceasefire. Um, uh, can you even see beyond that at this point? Um, or is that just the, the immediate call is for cessation and violence? That's the, that's the immediate thing that they're looking for. I mean, <clears throat> we're talking about now nearly 50 days of constant bombing and killing and I think people need to, to rest now. To, um, and, and then after that, we're talking about, like, for example, more aids to come in. What has come in is nothing. I've seen it. Um, there, were, there was big news that aid is coming in and aid is coming in. But what I was seeing, I couldn't find any food. Right? Um, that wasn't really um, enough. So I think there should be more aid that's coming in. There should be more sheltering of people. The problem is now, Houses are, lots and lots of houses that have been destroyed. I mean, among mm -hmm. the 90 people that are, were um, refugees in my house, at least half of them have lost their houses. So half the families have lost their houses. So when we talk about internally displaced people, 90 yes. people were in your home uh, alone. In, in my house, yes, yes. And um, as I said, half of them don't have anywhere to go. If Let's say if there's a ceasefire today, there's nowhere for them to go. Yeah, so you know? what, I, I suppose with all that, while the, you know, mm -hmm. there are strong calls from some countries like Ireland for this ceasefire, it's what, what happens in that time as well, well, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, we need a ceasefire. We need a ceasefire immediately. Also, I think the fate of the hostages is a significant political issue in Israel. And I think if some hostages are released, they should all be released, by the way, but if and when, and hopefully some are released, that'll have a significant political impact in Israel. Because a lot of the focus in Israel at present is the fate of the hostages. They want to see them released. Lots of people in Israel don't want to see the Gaza being smashed the way it is being smashed. They want to get the hostages back and there's a recognition there that this is a political problem that requires a political solution. Um, it, it's one to note, isn't it, with this, that, you know, the, the, the politics around this and, and the, the freeing of the hostages, and we're thinking as well of um, Dublin man, Thomas Hand, his daughter, Emily Hand, is being held. She just turned nine years of age, and I know how concerned her family are for her. He was speaking about it today, but... Uh, you'd wonder as well that Taoiseach was speaking to the Qatari Prime Minister mm -hmm. on what influence that could potentially have on, on what's happening. Yeah, but I think the, the important thing is the, the ceasefire because without the ceasefire, the aid cannot, uh, cannot travel. I mean, it, it, it's not safe. Also, aid is being blocked. Israel is blocking aid from, from coming into Gaza. There must be a ceasefire and the hostages must be, uh, must be released. But as Oliver had pointed out, 
in order to be able to do that, there has to be a ceasefire. So there has to be safe passage and there must be a ceasefire. That's why every country and Ireland needs to show leadership on this, as we did with, with apartheid in uh, South Africa in the 80s. We need to show that leadership and be front and centre and uh, be a voice for a ceasefire, be a voice for peace. And also, uh, you know, there is going to be a massive rebuilding that will have to be done. Aid will no doubt be, uh, undoubtedly be required, but nothing can happen until there is a ceasefire. And, and I think that's, yeah. that is the message that needs to get out, is yeah. there must be a ceasefire because without that, there can be no talking. Yeah. And without no talking, there, there can be uh, no end to, to, to this. And, and, and many voices, are, and a growing number of voices are, are pushing for that, Mick. But what we're, what we're seeing from the Israeli leadership is that they are not going to stop. They do not plan on stopping what they're doing. Um, you know, it seems like a fairly intractable situation unless there is, you know, a, a pause of a number of days and that's, you know, what they're going to give in order to secure the release of some hostages or else what we, we see is the release of Palestinian prisoners who are being held um, yeah. in, in Israeli prisons. Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the only hope in that respect is the internal dynamic within Israel because politically... The Netanyahu is coming under an awful lot of pressure from families of the hostages. And you have to hope that uh, that's going to bear some fruit, uh, if nothing else, just to bring about that ceasefire. But it, it, even the mere fact that we're now reduced to talking about a ceasefire for a day, two days, three days. I mean, even when we're Talking in those terms, sort of an indication of how appalling the whole thing mm. is. Is it going to be a case, in the very best case scenario, there is a ceasefire a few days, some hostages are released, and then the bombing resumes again? I mean, you know, we, you have to, on some level, if it stops, there has to be something there to ensure it doesn't start again, because, quite frankly, that's the way the, 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 the military and the IDF are, are looking to continue to think. Mm -hmm. But that's why we need to move on from using language like humanitarian pause. I mean, I, I found that just so awful. The idea that there just be a stop, a pause, and then a resumption at some point after, you know, that, that, that's not acceptable. It has to be a complete ceasefire. And I think only when there is a complete ceasefire will there be the conditions for, for discussions to take place and for, for hostages to be released. All of those hostages should be released, absolutely. But we need that ceasefire mm -hmm. and a complete ceasefire, not a, 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 a temporary pause is not, going to, is not going to be good enough. And, and, and to you on that, Ibrahim, when people talk about temporary pauses and humanitarian pauses, does that offer any relief or any, you know, does it allay any concerns of your family, you know, here in Dublin about relatives who are in Gaza? Many of those relatives you left behind in your home, there were 90 people there, I'm sure. Yeah. They are still there. Yes. Um, would that offer any respite or, or, or any sort of relief to them? Or is there just a fear if absolutely, you pause? Absolutely. What comes um, after that? Absolutely. So um, my in-laws, um, my, my wife's parents, um, they're with me. But even when we're out now into safety and, and, and well, enjoying now the comfort of life here, but they are really worried because they have a son and a daughter and they're still in that house. Um, that we have left and um, they're always worried they're always thinking about them and I can feel it I I can feel they're always sad and we they're always concerned about their safety so I think if we if there is a deal reached where that um, ceasefire is agreed I think it will be a great relief 
for them and then for everyone else. All right, there we will leave that. My thanks to Ibrahim for joining us in studio tonight and to Oliver McTiernan, who was with us on Skype. Now, coming up after the break, we debate a new study that states that disinformation is on the rise here in Ireland. Do stay with us. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back. A new report from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which assessed more than 13 million online posts, has found that misinformation and disinformation is growing across all social media platforms in Ireland. Fianna Fáil's Jim O'Callaghan, Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly and the Irish Examiner's Mick Clifford have stayed on with me. And we are joined on Skype by Kieran O'Connor from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and columnist and commentator Laura Perrins. You're both very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first, Kieran, on this, you're one of the co-authors of the Ishka Fuihalov uh, report, which looked at both mis- and disinformation exploding in the past three years since COVID. Uh, your group, Institute for Strategic Dialogue, tell us um, about that organisation and why this research came about. Sure, yeah. ISD is a think tank based in London, but offices in Washington, D.C., Berlin and other places. Um, fiercely independent. Um, each kind of funding project goes through a rigorous uh, approval process, grant application process, as this project did. This project is funded by the European um, Media and Information Fund which is a fund that um, supports research into disinformation, but also supporting media literacy uh, and other initiatives like this. So uh, last year, myself and my colleagues put in a grant application for this research project to study um, um, online mis and disinformation in Ireland at scale. And really, um, the interest in trying to tackle this um, issue at, at scale was because I think we can all agreed that we've become aware in varying degrees that since uh, 2020 in particular that online platforms are being used to create and share false misleading and potentially harmful claims and content at an increasing rate so what i think this research does is provide firm evidence that supports that statement and illustrates how this dynamic has evolved since then what are the big topics that came up the big points of discussion and i suppose where you saw the spread of misinformation and disinformation and just to differentiate between the two uh, disinformation is when you knowingly spread false information. Is it with intent rather than the misinformation where you may you may see something, not know it's fake and pass it on? 
Exactly. Yeah. Misinformation is false or misleading content that is shared regardless of the intent. Disinformation is deliberate. Uh, so there's some uh, agenda or something like that, that kind of dynamic behind it. Um, the largest topic that featured in our research was health. And really what that means is COVID. Uh, COVID was a catalyst for the proliferation of conspiracy theories, myths and disinformation but also for the, the growth and reach uh, of the community of communities that are built on um, a kind of conspiracy theory mindset. And we're really living in the, the after effects of this. It's reflected in the data, I think, quite well, is that communities or um, online kind of groups and organizations like this as well, that were formed during COVID to discuss the pandemic have since moved on to talk and kind of become involved in discussion and promotion of myths and disinformation mm. in relation to different topics, including uh, immigration, I suppose, is probably the next big one in the report. And do you specifically categorise that group as being in the far right? Um, well, it depends on the, the this does not this was not a research project that set out to examine um, far right actors and, and groups and organizations. But what was um, reflected quite clearly in the data was that the types of uh, figures or gang groups or organizations that were at the forefront of the the number of posts in relation to discussions, but also the prominence within discussions too. So essentially, the figures lead in conversation in relation to each uh, to most of the topics. Uh, more often than not, we saw far-right figures at the heart of these discussions in promoting and producing false and misleading claims in relation to, to different topics. Okay, um, thanks for that, Kieran. I, I, at this point, I want to bring Laura Perrins into the discussion. Laura, you're a columnist and commentator. You take issue with what's defined as dif disinformation, do you? Well, I just take it. I think we should be very cautious when um, we have reports like this and just ask ourselves, you know, is this report a part of what I would call an ecosystem attacking freedom of speech and a pro-censorship um, ecosystem? Because it's one thing to call out, you know, extremism and, and comments that people you know, feel are outside the, the, the area of legitimate debate. But when that is conflated with perfectly reasonable and per perfectly legitimate pol political debate, I think we should be very careful. And I think that often happens um, in these kind of debates because I, I did read as much of the report as I could. And it certainly does call out um, you know, conspiracy theories that very, very pe few people will go along with. And then also object, say, to debates around transgender policy or, or even immigration, when both of those issues are perfectly live political mm -hmm. issues that people will have different opinions about. So you believe that it's conflating extremism with normal conservative thought, which you, well, you know... A, a lot of... You would, um, I mean, sorry, just to give your background on it, Laura, where do you come from on this debate and this discussion when it comes to issues around um, what Kieran talked about there, around health, around immigration in this country and so forth? Yeah, so my, my basic position is, is, is one of free speech. That's first of all, is that you can't have a debate if you're constantly slandering people or um, conflating them with people on the extremes. And um, secondly, secondly, in terms of where I come on certain issues, it would depend on the issue, but I'm broadly a socially conservative person. Um, I've written probably thousands of 
blogs and articles that are there for people to read. Um, so that's my that's my broad approach. But it certainly depends on um, the the individual issue. But when when very fundamental positions and very fundamental rules come up, such as freedom of speech, I think we should all be very careful as to what gets labelled, you know, far right or indeed far left. Um, and what what can be seen as legitimate debate? Think, because I think smearing of, of 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 individuals happens very very easily. And do you believe that um, that's what's happening here, or do you believe that bad actors exist? That there are people who want to stir up extremist views that can then play out in real life, as we've seen, resulting in hate towards individuals, ethnic minorities, racism, homophobic attacks. I think. I, I Actually, the, the report itself um, looks at the gave a percentage of the uh, I think the amount of posts covered in each topic and health dominated, which uh, you would assume on when COVID was was breaking. Everybody, if you were on the internet or on Twitter, you, most of the time you're going to be talking about COVID, and if they call that health, well, then clearly that'll be really high. But actually, under their label of ethno nationalism, over three years there was only something like zero point zero five percent of the discussion discussion was um, around that particular topic, which I assume is some very uh, extreme form of nationalism. So actually, even the own report, this idea that there are far right, that there are loads of far right actors and loads of fascists sort of hiding everybody everywhere in Ireland, I think um, has been exaggerated. Those that do exist, right. and I don't think there are many, also they have very little influence, very okay. little influence. Okay, let's bring our panel in at this point, um, our panel in studio. Um, come to you, Mick, on this. Does um, the report and reports like it, I mean, do we over-egg them or does it overstate the issue of fascism of far right? It depends on who's writing the report, but I think there is potential there for conflation between what's called conservative and particularly in today's world, someone else's conservative <coughs> Catholic scenarios and, and what is far right. One of the problems there is just that term, far right. What exactly does it mean? I mean, if we had more specific idea of what was being referenced, to me, the main thrust of far-right activity, particularly in this country, is around immigration. And the spreading of disinformation uh, is around immigration in that respect as well. Some of it's really appalling stuff. And those, those individuals, those actors, or whatever you want to call them, they are very much far-right as mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned. But there have been occasions, I wrote about a different report <clears> myself, <throat> where this is conflated, where you might have, for example, conservative Catholic organisations being described as far-right, or people who, who have issues over areas like uh, gender dysphoria. Now, they're all things people can have their views one way or the other on them. But when we call everything far-right, to me, that can create a problem, especially when, to me, really serious stuff like what's been put about, about the likes of immigration. That okay. is what really requires the most attention. Okay. Uh, Kieran, I just want to bring you in briefly. When um, What does your report find specifically about, say, the issue of far-right? Is it, uh, I think there was a mention of support for white nationalism, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on some uh, platforms. Is that specifically what you're referring to when it comes to uh, far-right influence? Um, yeah, what, what we looked at uh, across the board in different topics, we were seeing figures who have a history of promoting uh, far-right ideologies. And um, I have to agree with uh, some of the points that Laura and Mick said there. I think that the label can be applied too quickly and too easily. 
for our own sake, we, we have been as careful and as considered as we can. We have definitions uh, in the glossary of this report mm -hmm. that describe the types of categories in which we've used to define the types of actors that are featured in the um, in the research. Yeah, when, when, when we look at the activity of, of, of far right uh, figures, groups, organizations, yeah, we see them across multiple uh, topics. In particular, yes, as, as Mick alluded to there, immigration was, I suppose, a flashpoint of activity around this and kind of, um, I suppose, differentiating between, you know, the kinds of activity that is just normal, you know, political debate online mm -hmm. versus what veers into mis and disinformation. Oh. I think, the, I think the best example is, sorry, very quickly, the best example is that use of the term plantation to describe something like the arrival of asylum seekers as, a, as an enemy force moving in and then using this kind of claim to promote anti-immigration sentiments. And we see the, the downstream effects of this more and more, I think, because of that. All right. Um, to bring you in on this, Louise, do you think that politicians are targeted in this era of misinformation and disinformation in terms of how you've personally perhaps seen your words manipulated or used in a certain way. Because uh, mm -hmm. we're talking as well about how, um, you know, falsehoods within stories, fake news, essentially. Yeah, that, that kind of covers that in this report. Yeah, and the, the, the report's very clear on the, the use of disinformation to, uh, you know, and, and the extent actually to which it spreads so quickly. I mean, you know, it is true what our grannies told us, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth even has its boots on. You know, this is this is a fact, this stuff spreads very fast. And the report is very clear that this, that, that this, that this, that this disinformation uh, is being used to stir up hate, to stir up anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, and also is, is fake. And, you know, so I think we need to, Look at the obligations on the, the platforms and the, the, the regulation of social media, mm. which is really, really important. And we also need to look at, at educating people so that people can tell the difference between what is and what isn't. And if I isn't just it, take... Isn't it increasingly difficult to do that? Like we can go on now and talk about the age of AI and how it is very, it is increasingly difficult. Or would you say, actually, no, the responsibility is on people as well to well, you know, deep dive into is, a story before they I think the responsibility is, uh, there, there's a number of, of factors in this, right? So the responsibility is on the social media platforms in the first instance, because they are the ones that are uh, facilitating the dissemination of this. Mm. But we also need to look for trusted news sources so that people can know that when they're getting their news, be it from a paper, from the television, from the internet, wherever they're getting their news, that they have a trusted news source to go to. The issue that I would have, and certainly coming um, after having read the report, not, not in in-depth in detail, but having gone through the, the report briefly this evening, is that people appear to be getting news from these uh, from these websites, that is disinformation, and that is then fueling right. that kind of anti-immigrant sentiment. And if I could just take issue with one of the things that was said, you know, trans people are not issues; they're people. <clears throat> What's that? Trans people are not issues; they are people. What, uh, was this discussed? Yes. Yeah, it was. It was the way it was framed. I just, I, right. I just, I okay. just want to say that. I right. think it's important. Um, uh, Lord, just briefly to come back to you on the issue that was just mentioned around, uh, that, that Louise just mentioned there around uh, the media and trusted news sources. Do you think that there's a distrust there uh, with people of what's dubbed mainstream media? Well, I think in terms of certainly the generational gap, I mean, I think most young people now, very few, get their news from mainstream media outlets. Now, mainstream media are clearly a very trusted source for older people and they have reporters for instance in incredibly um hot 
hot-button issues like the current Israeli-Gaza conflict, they actually have people on the ground. So the reports you're getting from them are eyewitness reports. But even the BBC and Sky, I know, had, had to correct at least three times on, on three different issues um, in relation to that particular um that particular story. So so it can be difficult. But uh, um, I mean, I think there are plenty of people who only get but their isn't news that, from I suppose Twitter. isn't that where, you know, trusted news sources, I mean, and I yeah. don't know what stories you're actually referring to there. Well, I won't. Yeah, I don't I know what stories you're referring to. I, I mean, it was a question, yeah. it was two on one side, you could say, and one on the other. Yeah. I'd quite, it, it was, it, it was an honest error they make. And as you say, because they're trusted, they've made the error mm. uh, or they've made or the correction. I, I, I get the point. But lots of people um, get their media, get their news only from Twitter. Um, right. I certainly re read around a story. I wouldn't take only the mainstream view. I will, for instance, okay. if they give me a report, I try and go online and actually read the report. All right. Um, because often there's a bias there. Okay. Uh, often, often you see a bias within a report, Jim. I, I look, generally, you know, what would you say about that? Because a lot of this would point to a policy failure. We're always going to have bias. I don't think what the report is about is bias. It's about disinformation. And it's also important to point out we've always had disinformation, but what distinguishes it now is social media means it gets around much faster than was the case prior to social media. And also artificial intelligence means now we're going to get to a stage where you literally won't be able to believe or see something that a politician is saying. And uh, I think Pat Leahy had a good article about this in the Irish Times at the weekend. Like it's happened in Britain recently where there have been recordings of Keir Starmer speaking, allegedly saying something, which wasn't him at all. It's just a deep fake. And that's really what we need to be looking at here when we're talking about disinformation. I don't think we should get into the debate about looking at the content of the topic in terms of determining our policy. The policy should be to try to stop disinformation online. And that should be the objective of the social media policies but it also should be an objective of all of us who look at social media. We've got to use our critical mm -hmm. fac facilities when we're looking at stories online to say, is that true or is that not true? You know? All right. OK, there we will leave that conversation for now. My thanks to Kieran O'Connor and Laura Perrins. Coming up after the break, break, we reflect on the life and legacy of businessman Ben Dunn. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Tributes have been paid to Cork businessman and former Dunn Stores Chief Executive Ben Dunn, who has died at the age of 74. The Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said he was deeply saddened to hear that Mr Dunn had died. Jim O'Callaghan, Louise O'Reilly and Mick Clifford have stayed on with me to reflect on his legacy. And Mick, to come to you first, because you were writing in The Examiner today on it. Um, how best do you think he will be remembered? Because there's many things that you can say about Ben Dunn. It was a life lived large, as you say yourself. Yeah, I mean, it was. And look, he, he made a success at Dunn Stores in the business front. Then he had the big follow-up. He subsequently made a success at gyms. He had a public profile in terms of business. But one of those rare kind of businessmen, I suppose, Michael O'Leary is a bit like it, your man, Morris Pratt, who used to be in Quinsworth, these people who have a public profile. But that was just his bit. But that was only a part of it. I mean, there's a, a sequence of events in his life that basically mm. touched hugely on public life, starting off at being kidnapped by the IRA, um, which was a very traumatic experience. Then nine years later, he's caught in Florida with the cocaine. He claims conveniently, but probably with a lot of basis, that some of that was unprocessed trauma from his, his kidnapping. 
That set off a chain reaction. His family wanted him out. In that court case, it, it emerges that he'd given a million euros or pounds to Charlie Hawley. That breaks open everything into this Ansbacker scene whereby the very wealthy had their own tax evasion scheme offshore while the governments of the day turned the other way and they just let it carry on. All of that ultimately ended with the downfall of Charlie Hawley, the exposing of the Ansbacker, the bringing in of tens of millions in, in, in tax. And Ben Dunn didn't come out too well out of that whole scenario either because Moriarty said that, you know, the, the, the payment, some of the payments he made were def could definitely be described as corrupt and he wasn't just throwing money at, at Charlie Hawley. So he always claimed he got a bad deal there, but then everybody who came out of tribunals bad claimed the same thing. But I suppose what you could say is he had redeeming features in his personality mm. and people liked him. No, I'd say people who were in opposition to him to business didn't like him, but generally speaking, people liked the guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of that and the heartfelt tributes that have been paid to him over the weekend. Louise, um, words of condolence from Mary Lou MacDonald. Uh, what did you think of the response, though, to her tweet? Um, uh, someone saying, you know that you kidnapped him, right, in that. Um, I mean, with all of that, is there kind of a sense or what, what, what's the sense of the man, the experience that he has and um, the view of his passing? Well, I think he uh, was one of those kind of masters of reinvention type uh, characters. I mean, Mick has just taken us very briefly through uh, his life and career. And I do want to offer my condolences to his family and, and his friends. It's a very sad time. And it's particularly sad to have his, his, his life, I suppose, played out in, in public. Uh, I know that his family have been online uh, thanking people, including my own party leader, for uh, their condolences and for their, their public show of, uh, of support for the family. But, you know, he is one of those kind of characters that had been through so many uh, iterations and reinvented himself so many times and is associated with uh, so many different aspects of Irish life. But the big impact as well, Jim, like that he had, it wasn't like as the, 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 the supermarket dynasty and all of that. It was the impact he had on political life because of the massive payments that he made to Charlie Hawley, to Michael Lowry. £1.9 million punts, mm -hmm. uh, was at the time that emerged as a result of the, the McCracken Tribunal and the other tribunals. And the scandal around that, like what's been the consequence of, of that in shaping the party, like to Fianna Fáil in particular? Oh, it's had a huge impact, I would have thought, in terms of uh, politics in Ireland. Like, first of all, I, I offer my condolences to Ben Dunn's family. Uh, he obviously went through a difficult time in his life being kidnapped and held hostage for five, six days is not easy having your life threatened. In terms of the politics of it, obviously he should not have been given money to politicians and those politicians should not have been taking that money. Unfortunately, reports have identified what occurred and that has been publicised. But in terms of the consequence of that, obviously it, had a, it has cleaned up Irish politics considerably. So the fact that Ben Dunn's payments were revealed had a cleansing effect on Irish politics. But listen, I never met him. He seemed to have been a larger-than-life character. Um, he was very open about his weaknesses and his mm. failings. Particularly even when it came to the money he gave, he said he just gave money. He wasn't looking for anything in return. But you can't do that in politics, and you can't do that if you're a businessman. But I do think we should nor take accept. into account... Nor accept it, I think. I said that. And I know you did state that. But actually, in terms of 
Mick, briefly, that sort of, uh, the, the, the person who put his hands up, admitted his feelings and sought redemption. Um, that's something that went down well oh, with and, the and Irish public. Directly after Florida, he did that. And in fairness, I think he struck a chord with people. He was human. He had feelings. We all have feelings. And I think people could relate to the man thereafter. And as I say, he definitely had those personal qualities. I think people who knew him, I just met someone the other day, they were working in a shop out in Blanchardstown. They said he used to come in. He knew all the staff's name in there. He was just, he had that common touch. He, he came across a very decent man on, on that level, you know, and what, what, what he got involved in is another issue. But look, this is a, a very tough time for his family. He died suddenly. And I think most people have remembered him well. There we leave it. And our condolences indeed to Ben Dunn's family. That is it from us. My thanks to Jim O'Callaghan, to Louise O'Reilly and Mick Clifford, uh, all our contributors tonight from the late team here. Good night. Do take care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.